Anyway, so I was looking at the website and, and just trying to catch up with what God is doing amongst you and, and being here for us. And so I, I was listening to you, Dad, you know, and uh, Paul, amazing guy. We met with him up in Levin when we were up there uh, up in the North Island, and he was just talking about, you know, the things that are going on in his church with the healings and things like that. And I'm just like, yes, it's amazing. Just had tea with him briefly. And so sorry we missed him here, but, but the things that he was saying about, you know, sanctify the season, set, set, setting yourself apart, getting ready for what God is doing. And I think that's a timely word for all of us. You have been set apart, but sometimes we don't always, like, know how to do that or what that looks like. But sanctify the sin. And Honeyana up here, man, he's just like, God can use anybody, look at me, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, yes! (laughs) The passion, the passion and the power, the presence of God. So, how are we doing? Uh, Yeah, I can do this. I wanted to do, um, that was kind of what um, what we're we're trying to learn, or the other thing we're trying to be intentional is is, is learning um, about people of the land. We really are intentional about um, uh, drawing from as as missions, as missionaries. We want to honor the, the culture, the different cultures and the peoples we've been in over 30 countries, and, and so there's, each of them is, God is something special, a gift of all the peoples, of all the cultures, sort of that Joseph's coat of many colors, you know, and it's all together and all, all one, but all the uniqueness and the things that they bring, and so we've been trying to learn as Americans what that, what that is and, and developing relationship and, and, and uh, educating ourselves in, in a sense. On, on Maori culture, the history of, of Kiwi land here. So, <clears throat> one of the things that, that, that we've learned is what Maori do, and when, they, when we do the pulfrey and they join the, and, and the marae, is that when someone gets up in front, they, they begin to recall history. What, what do they call that? What, what, what's, what's the, there's a word for that, when they begin to recall their history and draw. Yeah, whatever that is. Whakapaka? Papa? Is that? No, no. Whatever. I don't know. Anyways, forgive me. But anyway, there's that, there's that thing. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to do that with you guys this morning. Briefly, I've got a few things that, <clears throat> that I want to show, but not yet. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the cue, but thank you. Blessing. Okay, so the 1820s, you have the, the mission pioneers, the Williamses and the Kendalls. And you have um, uh, some key, key Māoris that were, were there. Um, Fatu and Rangi from the Napui chief. In the 1830s, uh, guys came over from uh, the, where the Charles Finney revival was going on in, uh, in the U.S. And there were, this is when, when this incredible spread of the gospel among the Māoris. Uh, people would go there and... and to, to, to reach some of these Māori tribes, and they already discovered that the Māoris were singing hymns in Tereo already. They went there to go share the music, to teach the hymns, whatever, and they got there, and they hear them already singing. So there was this incredible move of God. Um, Honoheke was, an, uh, was um, uh, an important person in Tereo. 
Um, Nadi Har, he was a chief of the Tewar, Tewar Hora, Raroa. Anyway, um, I, I know I always get this Raharoa. Raharoa, okay. Anyway, his nephew, that's where Terora was, the little girl that had the book of yeah. Luke around it. You're all familiar with that story. So that's in 1830. And then 1837, the New Testament was translated in Tereo. So that was going on in the 30s and the uh, 1830s and 40s. 1840, Octavius Hadfield, he basically was the one that sort of broke tapu. He, he, he went into, he walked, walked through a chief's garden, and that was like, no, 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 you don't do that. And so the, one of the chiefs of the village says, you know, hey, that's bad. You can, you know, I'm going to curse you. And Hadfield said, no, that may just come back on you. And the next day, the, the priest was dead. And so they go, oh, this guy walks in power. So there was revival that went along there. Um, later on, he, was, he got sick. Uh, he, was, he was in bed for five years. And then uh, they said uh, he, would never, he would never recover. And he was miraculously healed. James Watkins, in, uh, from, in four years, he established 26 Māori missions from uh, Moraki to Stewart Island. Uh, in one year, he baptized 200 new Māori converts. Um, there was a, in 1848, there was a disastrous earthquake in Wellington. And then it was after that earthquake in Wellington that revival broke out. Sometimes we need a shaking in order to, for God to get our attention. We've had some shakings here. I think there's more to come. I think, I think we're up for another shaking because of what, what, what God was wanting to do, preparing hearts for this next move that's already begun. In the 1850s and 1860s, in a 20-year period there, there was a disease that, that spread through uh, the Māori population, killed about 30% of the Māori population. And then the gold rush of the 60s and the things that went on there. Um, and then the 1870s, the, the prime minister opened up this whole thing of immigration, uh, what they call assisted immigration. And so there were over 40,000 new Pākehā that came into the land. Uh, in the 1880s, there was a, a, a depression that went on. But during that time, there was, there was revivals going on in Auckland and Christchurch. A gentleman by the name of Buller was holding revival meetings. There was stuff going on in Whanganui. And these guys were influenced by uh, uh, Moody and Iris Sankey in the UK, the revival that was going on in the UK. Um, Henry Varley was a UK evangelist that preached in Wellington in 1879, and in that meeting was a guy by the name of Harry Roberts, and he gets saved. <clears throat> and he eventually led the New Pentecostal Church of New Zealand. And in 1900, later on, he was the one that was responsible for hosting Smith Wigglesworth here coming to New Zealand. So there's all these things that tie together. Thomas Spurgeon, the son of Charles Spurgeon came in the 1880s. He preached at the Baptist Church in Auckland, which became the largest church in the South Pacific of over 3,000 plus members. In 1881 in Waimate and Dunedin, there was a woman by the name of Mrs. Hampson. And she began to preach all over the South Island. This was unheard of in those days, a woman preacher. 
particularly in New Zealand, particularly in, in Baptist circles, Anglican circles. 1888, John Alexander Dowie came and visited New Zealand and basically kicked the devil, the Masonic, um, the devil out of, out of the church in the way of uh, the Masonics. The Masons drove him out of the church. Same year, George Mueller, a famous guy that visited uh, for orphanages, came. 1890s, there was revivals in Napier and here in Nelson and in Blenheim. In 1900s in Wellington, there were revival, more revival in Napier and Gisborne. In Christchurch, they had a, a revival there that over 10,000 people got saved. This is Tory Robert Laidlaw uh, got, got saved during that time. He's the one that basically established uh, farmers. Got saved in the revival there. And down in Dunedin and Invercargill. In the 1920s, 1910s and 1920s, we have some key Maoris, Tahapatiki and Ratana, that were influential. Uh, same time, 1922, is when Smith Wigglesworth first came. And he arrived, he held meetings in Wellington, in Christchurch, in Dunedin, Palmerston North, Auckland, and Blenheim. Um, he came to Christchurch, he wasn't that well received. And so they uh, sort of kicked him out, but he, he came back later on. 1930s, a gentleman by the name of John Bissett. He was a Presbyterian, and he did over 200 mission outreaches in the South Island. <clears throat> in Auckland, during that time, a person by the name of Asher Dalmore, he said this, he said, in virtually every meeting through the 1930s, people would get saved, healed, and fall to the ground under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I just want to... I, Read an account. How are we doing? Okay. Okay. 1936, Edwin Orr arrived in New Zealand to play a role in the Keswick Easter Convention in Nauruawaiya. Orr was an Irish minister who was only 24 years old at the time. 24 years old. Young people, young people, you guys can change your nation and the world. Evan Roberts was a young man. All the people in the Welsh Revival that started, it was started with the young people, 16-year-olds. Azusa Street started with the young people, young women. Fathers and mothers, Bless those kids. Give them space. Give them opportunity. And watch what God does. At the convention on the second night, 12 young men during a late night prayer meeting became convicted of their sin and cried out to God for cleansing, which then resulted in rejoicing. The young men then went out and spread this revival around other tents and camp, and many met in the main marquee for prayer. Men were broken down, confessed sin, cried for mercy, sought forgiveness, asked for revival, and the prayer meeting in the big marquee went ablaze with spiritual power. Of the thousand people attending, more than half made decisions to follow Christ. Or went from there to Mongatov, whatever it was, where a similar experience occurred with a group of around 200. Confession of sin, heartfelt repentance, forgiveness and joy and praise. He traveled around the North and South Islands and had similar outbreaks in Christchurch, Invercargill, Palmerston North, Hamilton, Rotorua, and Dargaville. 
By 1937, the Presbyterian Church statistics for numbers attending Sunday worship had jumped upwards by 5,000 new converts at a time when traditional churches were declining. Or returned to New Zealand again in 38, touring with the team. Reports say many people made decisions, but the main impact of these decisions is the great stirring up of spiritual fervor and resolve among the churches. 1950s, that's the 40s and 50s, 1950s, we have Frank Houston and Ray Bloomfield. And this, scores of Māori came to Jesus during those days, in spite of these marred vessels God will use. That means you and I had a chance. Honeyana stood up here, same thing. You don't get good and then decide, okay, I'm ready for you to use me, God. I'm ready to do something that you've called me to do. It doesn't happen that way. You respond to his prompting and his call. See, what happens is when we start looking at our stuff, we disqualify ourselves, and he doesn't disqualify us because he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means I qualify. 1956, Edwin Orr brought a team that included Corey Ten Boom, 1957, Tommy Hicks, 1955, Billy Graham came to Auckland and had over 50 or 60,000 people meeting in Auckland, but then he went to Wellington and had 81,000 people in his meetings. In the 1960s, there was a revival in the Timarus, uh, Ada Pollock, A.S. Worley, 1970s. We now have Ray Comfort and we have David and Dale Garrett, and we have Joy Dawson and her influence with YWAM and Lauren Cunningham. The 1980s, John Wimber visited in 1986. We have Barry Smith preaching all about end times, traveling around the country. Bill Sabritsky was traveling around the country, bringing healing and deliverance. And then the 90s, we have Toronto Kiwi style. We had Ian McCormick touring the country, giving his testimony. Some of you may know Jill Austin. And she was, uh, she was coming at Jill Austin. Let me, um, let's, we okay? We good? Okay, let's do the first one real quick. I just wanted a little bit of some more of the history. Calvary Chapel Tent Revival in the early 70s. I was invited to go to that as a young Marine. I'd, somebody asked me to go to a concert. And I thought, you know, I'd never seen two or 3,000 people line up you know, to go to a real concert, yes, or to go to a sporting event, yeah, but to, lock, to go to church, never seen that before. So here I am, the young Marine, and here are all these hippies with long hair and wooden crosses and beads and, and, and Bibles with, with fringe and leather and all these other kinds of things, Peace Brother and all this other kind of stuff, and man, I was like out of sorts. Keith Green, how many of you are familiar with Keith Green? You know, some of this long, uh, uh, amazing thing. Lonnie Frisbee, Lonnie Frisbee, was an ex-drug addict, an LSD. He was, he was um, uh, the, one of the least likely candidates for God to use in revival. And yet God used him to basically be catalytic for a thing called the Jesus Movement from 1968 all the way to 1993. 
He, was, he sparked the movement for Calvary Chapel. He sparked a movement among Vineyard on Mother's Day in 1980. I was there in that meeting. So these are the ones. Both young men were, um, Keith was somewhat of a prodigy. Lonnie was um, just a druggie. <laughs> Seriously. About five foot seven. He probably didn't weigh 150 pounds. He was born with a club foot, had some operations. He was bullied while he was growing up. He was sexually abused as an eight-year-old for a year and a half by a babysitter because his parents wouldn't believe the story. And so he had all these things to overcome. He has this dramatic encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers him. And so he would just go into places and, and people with the power of God would just fall. Okay, next one. So, Jesus People Mass Baptism down in Orange County, that's where I got baptized on October the 4th, 1976. <clears throat> Toronto Blessing breaks out, and later on in Vineyard, Rodney Howard Brown traveling around the country, Revival Chronicles, he was basically responsible for, for the for Toronto breaking out. Rodney Howard Brown was doing meetings, there was a burnout pastor from St. Louis, Calvary Chapel pastor, and he got blessed. His name was Randy Clark. He got blessed at a, at a Rodney Howard Brown meeting. He went to a vineyard meeting in a regional meeting of pastors. Uh, they, asked, they asked Randy Clark to share. Randy Clark shared his experience. The Holy Spirit fell on the group of these vineyard pastors. They got through at the end of the meeting and, and the vineyard pastors were, you know, sort of like, oh, that was great, thank you very much. Only one vineyard pastor came up to Randy and said, Randy, would you come to my church? And that was John Arnott. So Randy went to Toronto, planning on doing just a few meetings and ended up staying six weeks, the first time in January of 1994. And the rest is history. So much so that over four and a half, some almost five million people have been through Toronto in a little over 10 years. British Airways and Virgin Airways set up charter flights from the UK and South Africa and stuff because of the demand for people to fly to Toronto to receive the Father's blessing. If you want to know more about the stories there, if you have some concerns about Toronto, come and talk to me. I've been there several times. Annie and I have been there several times. We know where the stories originated from. We can tell you the real thing. I started, I got saved uh, as a 15-year-old when Amdrak Crouch led me to the Lord in high school. Then I committed my Lord at Calvary Chapel in that tent meeting thing in 1976 as a young Marine. I started with John Wimber in November of 1977 when we were at Calvary Chapel, uh, Yorba Linda before we took on the name Vineyard in 1980. I spent over 10 years with Vineyard. I'm one of John's sons. I'm unapologetic, my Vineyard DNA. <laughs> and then from there I went to YBAM. Okay, next one, real quick. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Lakeland, Florida Revival. We went there, the Brownsville Revival, been there too. People lined up in Brownsville Revival, much like the early days of Calvary Chapel. People would stay up all morning long, get in line two, three, four o'clock in the morning just to get into church to meet with God. Lakeland, Florida Revival, probably about 
20,000, 25,000 people there, healing revival, amazing things going on. Worship was absolutely phenomenal in each of those places. Next one. So then we have revivals. Reinhard Bonnke, that one in, um, in Africa, there's over 500,000. T.L. Osborne did healing revivals in Africa. And of course, some of you are familiar with Catherine Kuhlman, the healing evangelist. Next one. Vineyard Christian Fellowship in the early days when we met in the Canyon High School. It was there, Family Christian Center in Sacramento. We spent four years there, did almost a thousand meetings. That's where we got, we began to know uh, Bill Johnson. Because they were part of a Assemblies of God church up in Reading. We were in Sacramento and there's another church in Vacaville. And so um, we uh, actually, the revival broke out in Sacramento and uh, almost the same time up in Bethel, they would come down. We did the School of Supernatural Ministry there in Sacramento. Uh, almost a thousand meetings in four years, people, God was, was moving. Okay, next. The Call DC has taken place in September 2000. This is in the US, the Send Brazil, February 2020. Okay, now the call has been, been something that was going on with um, Lou Engel. Everybody knows seen Jesus. Anybody know Lou Engel? Praise God. This is what he does. He's been interceding for 30 years just for a revival to come across the country and all the world. That's Lou. Look him up. You'll see this. We knew Lou. We, we were introduced to Lou almost 30 years ago. But anyway, so the call was basically bringing people to, to the Lord, called to evangelism, things like that, for for. Almost 25 years, Lou had been going, traveling around the country doing that, culminating in D.C. But then the Send, the Send Brazil, they were going to do this thing. They had to hire two different uh, stadiums in Brazil because of the number of people that had signed up to go. There's over 400,000 people there. And the call, the, the, the mission the, to the Send was 400,000 young people to go into the nations and preach the gospel. That was in February of 2020. When did COVID hit? Hmm. Coincidence? I don't think so. Revival in Pakistan. We were in um, California and we met this gentleman by the name of Anwar Fazal. And he had just, uh, this is only, this is a little bit over a year ago. And he, um, he had said, I've just come back from Pakistan. I want to show you what's going on in Pakistan. So he brings this video, this drone coverage of, it says 350,000 gathered. There were more than that. But this is in Pakistan. These are Muslims. There were over somewhere between 25 and 40,000 that gave their life to Christ. And, and about 25,000 that were healed, the, 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 the team took over six hours to record all of the healing miracles that took place in that meeting alone in Pakistan. It's happening, folks. It's happening. Fastest growing church in the world today is the underground church in Iran, 70% of it being led by women. The five fastest areas 
of churches and revival that have been going on in the last two years is China. 20% of the governing political party is born again. And it's permeating the very fabric of society with the values of the gospel until COVID. And then what's happened, the Chinese government is starting to crack down on it. India, 2,300 ethnic groups. There's a woman there that is, her name is a woman again, okay, who is leading a movement of over 25,000 new churches. Brazil, 40% of the people in Brazil are authentic believers in Jesus Christ. The Sun Brazil. See, God has a plan. Nigeria. Heidi Baker has seen 25,000 churches planted with signs and wonders and miracles. We know personally the one who oversees Iris Ministries in South Africa. His name is uh, Suprasatola. Uh, he is uh, part of his team and himself. He's seen a number of people who have been raised from the dead. We actually talked to and interviewed one of the gentlemen that was raised from the dead. And so that was uh, interesting because, I, you know, we look at that like, man, that's like the height of, of ministry. That's, you know, you raised the dead, man, you've, you've reached it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing these, these, these African men and some of these pastors. And they're, they're looking at me like, what's the big deal? And I mean, what, what do you mean? That's why you've been raised with it. And they're going, no, 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 you don't understand. It's all part of the package. See, in their mindset, they don't have a, a, a graded scale. They don't look at the things that Jesus said to do as any more difficult than anything else. It's all part of the package. Whether you're healing sick, opening rays, you know, opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears, cleansing the leper, pleasing, you know, preaching the gospel, feeding the poor, you know, clothing the naked, you know, lame walk, the dead are raised. It's all the same to them because it's the whole package. And they have a worldview that's a little bit different in ours that accepts that a little bit more readily than we do in the Western world. But God is working on that. He's changing that. He's changing that in our midst. By what? by his presence in your midst, by your encounter with him, so that you're in touch with the supernatural and you become naturally supernatural. So that you don't have to come to church to experience his presence, but his presence goes with you, just as Moses said. If your presence doesn't go with us, we're not doing anything. The Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit on you, in you for you, on you for others. So you can, quote-unquote, John Wimber, my spiritual father, so you can do this stuff. One more. Is there one more? Or is that it? Today's revivalist, Todd White. I don't know how many people can get into the Temple Mount where he got to because of praying for a man that, that, that got healed or whatever. Daz Chettle, and then the flood. So these are things that are going on today. Let me just finish with this. Thank you for your patience. Two thousand four, David and Susan Cole led the Impact World Tour through fifty-three New Zealand towns and cities over a period of three months. 
This was a massive evangelistically motivated logistical endeavor that rallied the support of hundreds of churches. According to the website, they saw 23,000 people respond to the gospel in stadiums and public venues. Despite this incredible response, church attendance in New Zealand continued to decline over this period. The New Zealand census figures of 2013 show that the numbers of church attenders in the nation have halved since the 1960s, even among once rapidly growing Pentecostal churches. The heartening news is that the number of people in the total population who identify themselves as Christians is still hovering around the 60% mark. So what does that tell us? Doing church different. God is gonna gather. There's things going on on a grassroots level on other places. What we are facing now in New Zealand is not dissimilar to what New Zealand experienced in its first few decades of missionary endeavor. Missionaries in the 1800s were explaining a gospel to a people who had no accurate concept of who God is, of what Jesus has done, and what the Holy Spirit is continuing to do. Yet the effect of persistent, courageous preaching of the good news meant eventually hearts were open to the experience of a loving God who wanted to be in family with his children. When Māori grasped the loving, redemptive concepts of Christianity, they took hold of this good news with vigor, and the spread of the gospel ran past any work that the missionaries were doing and rushed ahead of any church rules or regulations. Perhaps for the first time in New Zealand's history since then, we are back in a similar position. Many New Zealanders have no understanding of who Jesus is. Some have never even heard his name outside of a swear word. A rapidly increasing population of immigrants also means new generations of New Zealanders have imported religious backgrounds. While our nation has new levels of complexity with its expanding population and its increasingly international influence, the gospel in this setting has the same power to save that it did back in the early 1800s. In 2012, a team of seven British intercessors became involved in a nationwide journey of reconciliation, led by Kiwis Joan Edmondson and Bradford Hami. Together, this team sought out the forgiveness of Māori all over the nation for the wrongs done by the British people. Thousands of intercessors from the UK and New Zealand were involved in this effort over a period of four years. Following this prayer journey, several small revivals popped up in areas that had been visited and the impact of this is still unfolding. One of these areas was Kawarau. Yep. In June 2014, the small town had a move of God that impacted the whole community, especially the youth. After a period of eight weeks of Holy Spirit meetings, the local high school of 450 students now had 300 new Christians. The principal stated that over 100 of the students were forming prayer circles during school breaks. At the time of the revival, the priest reported a nil crime rate, something unheard of in this town. Yeah. Beloved, thank you for allowing this American from California to share with you. Wesley, thank you for 
allowing me some time. I know it's tough, but I want to encourage all of you. Your prayers are being answered. Those of you gray hairs who have walked in and experienced some of these moves from way back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the charismatic move in 80s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Your prayers are being answered. God is on the move. And his invitation is and has always been to join him in what he's doing. To join him in what he's doing. You're hosting the glory of God. Keep doing what you're doing. Because there's more to come. There's more to come. I would encourage you to get the book, A Brief History of Revivals in New Zealand. I would encourage you to go online and read something called They Told Me Their Stories, which is a, an interview of, of the children of the Azusa Revival and the things that they experienced. Look it up. Because it's an encouragement to what God is doing to ourselves and to yourself. 10 years ago, I was in the shower and I was praying about what was going on here in New Zealand and what our role would be. And out of the clear blue sky, God says, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you talk like that? Seriously, it was, it was almost like, you know, Texas twang, y'all seen nothing yet. You know, I thought, what? He said, yeah. About five years later, I'm in a Baptist church in Oxford, New Zealand, where a team has just come back from Bethlehem. There's two lines of people, and they're asking people to come through, and they're laying hands on They call it a fire tunnel. And they're laying hands on it, and the Holy Spirit is going to run. And I'm going through, and, and, and this little lady, Kiwi lady, grabs me and spins me around and looks up at me in her best Kiwi accent. She says, God says you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh. I thought, my God, Kiwis don't even talk like that. And it was verbatim. I thought, oh my God, you're up to something. And so I've been, you know, I'm looking. What is the Holy Spirit doing? What is it I'm breathing? A month ago, we're up near Lake Rota. Thank you. At some, at some people's house that have a, a home church that they do up there. And we were visiting and meeting them and had a good time. We were praying and then they began to prophesy a little bit over, and as I'm getting to leave, the lady, Sarah, looks up, looks up at me, she grabs me and she says, God wants you to know, you ain't seen nothing yet. God wants you to know, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's coming, it's coming. Okay, let's stand. Thank you, Wes.